Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, and I'm here today with Paul Prescott. Paul, what's going on? Happy Wednesday. Did you watch the inauguration? I did. I, I had a great brunch today. I don't know how your brunch was, but... Uh, we all, um, we all brunch. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I really enjoyed um, Garth Brooks. I haven't thought about him in like 10 years, so... I know. Nice I was going to gonna say, yeah, I, 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 the, the whole like celebrity rollout, I feel was very, very like the times before Trump, the times before the pandemic, right. you know, uh, as you say, in the case of Garth Brooks, the time before 10 years ago. Yeah. I feel like he was sort of trotted out as the sort of bipartisan avatar of like middle white yeah. America or something. I think it was um, the Democrats culture war. This is like them testing out their version <laughs> of the, uh, working class culture war. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, so on that note, like how convincing was Biden's message of unity? Did it, did it move you? (laughs) I mean, no, but you know, I mean, there's nothing that could unite people more than the actual policies that people have already, you know, have expressed that will unite them such as, you know, these broad universal economic policies that I think, you know, that's, I think where you can forge, um, true unity. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people talk about the relief of today, you know, and obviously, yeah. yes, I feel that relief that Trump's no longer. Okay. I, I also feel a kind of different type of relief that, you know, I think for the left broadly defined and our type of left, like we, I feel a little relieved that we don't have to keep following the horse race, you know, and, yeah. you know, I've honestly never been someone that into electoral politics and, and, you know, the Bernie campaign got me to the place of like actually following the horse race. And I think that's kind of what we should have been doing at that time. But, you know, I think now there's some space where, you know, we don't have to follow every, every maneuver of the cabinet or we kind of know what Biden's going to be. And, you know, and I would just caution against, you know, obviously our, the squad and our, the elected officials we have are very important and what they do is, is important. But, you know, and I think the theme of this show is when we think about organizing, like, let's not just think about it as a series of parliamentary maneuvers. Like, okay, what is AOC going to do this month? And then what is she going to do next month? You know, those are things that are at this point, I don't have full control over them. I don't really want to have full control over each maneuver. Um, So I think we can kind of take a breath and focus about how do we expand our base? Um, How do we keep organizing? How do we build? on what, you know, the Bernie campaign did, which was kind of identify we have this big potential base. So I think now our task is cultivating it and not following Biden's every last word. I think also in addition to kind of getting over some of that horse race stuff that you were talking about, um, hopefully the end of the Trump era also means an end to the more unhinged expressions of the so-called resistance, such as lighting votive candles to Robert Mueller or buying Dr. Fauci underwear. Um, So hopefully those are behind us as well. Um, And I I guess, you know, to go back to the theme of unity, um, I was really struck by how Mark, um, Mike Pence obviously appeared at the inauguration, um, as he said he would. And did you see this part where Bill Clinton, uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, like all the former presidents that were there, like swarmed out to greet him warmly? And it was kind of like, like, I think when Biden talks about unity, like 
he means it in a broad way uh, where he wants to sort of bridge political polarization among the polity. But in this particular context, it really just looked like he was talking about elite bipartisan consensus yet again, right? And I think that was sort of visually demonstrated in all of these former presidents, like shaking hands and, you know, uh, it, it was kind of like the gang's all back together. Right. And, you know, it shows that the ultimate lesson that Trump was the biggest FU voters could have sent to that consensus, you know, clearly they're showing they're not learning the lesson of, you know, what that means. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, and I think, again, it's like, you know, I think his theme was always like, come on, Trump voters, trust me, you know, be with me. And again, I think there's no better way to do that than start to deliver for people. And, you know, I know on this show, we probably mentioned the New Deal way too much. And I promise, like, I'm not, I don't have a shrine of FDR, but I think the, the reason I mentioned a lot is like, unfortunately, it's one of the only things we can point to in our history of the kind of robust, not even social democracy that we want. But I think one of the lessons, too, is that when the Democrats started putting through those programs, they dominated politics for the next few decades. So, you know, if you really want to talk about winning over people and getting them to trust you and buy in, you know, start start delivering. And I think you you could start seeing that. Right. And the flip side is once Democrats started abandoning those policies, then they started bleeding working class voters. So. Right. Yeah. Um, Well, on that note, um, I think I want to talk now a little bit about sort of the difference between political power, uh, which is broadly the theme of our show tonight. Um, I do want to mention we will have on Jane McAlevey in about 30 minutes. Many of you probably are already familiar with her. She's a brilliant labor organizer and labor negotiator, um, and she'll have lots of interesting things to say about um, how we can build a working class movement um, over the next four years and beyond. Um, So I guess I... I guess I'll just sort of close out the Trump era uh, by talking about uh, sort of the difference between political uh, power and vigilante violence, uh, which, of course, was a huge theme during the Trump administration. So, of course, the Trump administration, you know, thankfully ended today. Um, And while he was in office, there was a lot of fear that he was emboldening and enabling a resurgence of white supremacist violence. Now, you know, obviously this this is true to a certain extent. Um, I don't think anyone, you know, will ever forget the images of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, uh, where, you know, a white supremacist drove his car into a crowd and killed demonstrator Heather Heyer. Um, and of course, exactly two weeks ago, uh, we saw a pro-Trump mob storm the Capitol. And, you know, there are definitely Confederate flags and Nazi imagery in that crowd. Um, and, you know, in both in both cases, Trump really wavered on condemning the violence or, you know, he sort of spoke out of both sides of his mouth, I guess, uh, when when he when he spoke about it, which, of course, made it seem like he was pandering to the far right um, or at least winking in their direction. Right. And I I think it's fair to say, you know, that his administration has openly flirted with the far right, probably more than any other administration in living memory, um, particularly through Trump's hardline immigration policies like the Muslim travel ban and, of course, his calls to build the wall. Um, But, you know, that said, I... 
I think it's also important to consider uh, something that the political scientist Corey Robin has pointed out, which is that in many ways, Trump was a really weak president um, compared to his Republican predecessors, uh, Reagan and the two Bushes. In terms of legislation, Trump wasn't really able to push through all that much. Um, there were his tax cuts and, you know, a handful of executive orders. Uh, but on that last note, Biden has already promised to reverse a ton of them. And, you know, Corey Robin's point is really that the damage that Trump was able to inflict uh, was really only made possible by institutions like the Electoral College, the Senate and the Supreme Court, and wasn't really like the result of his own authoritarian will. So, you know, in addition to that, um, when we look also at the far right itself, um, I, I think, again, as I said, it's really important to distinguish clearly between political power and vigilante violence. So to use, I guess, just a very basic definition, um, political power is when a group or individual is able to control or exert some kind of influence on statecraft and public policy. And, you know, I think using that definition, we have to be very clear about what white nationalists and like militia members and other far right extremists are capable of and what they're not capable of. So, um, you know, first of all, white supremacist extremism is actually on the decline compared to prior decades. Um, and, and I mentioned this not to discount it uh, because obviously it's still a very real threat. Um, it's very dangerous. But I think, you know, the fact that white supremacist violence is declining sometimes gets lost a little bit in the churn of the media cycle, right? So if you look at the news headlines, especially during the Trump years, you'll often see things like, you know, hate crimes have gone up or there's been an increase in hate groups or, you know, we have all these headlines about the Proud Boys marching or starting street fights or whatever. And um, again, all of these instances are, are definitely troubling. And, and we also know that it's the far right. It's not like ISIS or left wing, left wing groups or whatever uh, that commits the bulk of the extremist violence in the U.S. Um, but to, to kind of put this into historical context, uh, in the U.S., the Ku Klux Klan was like famously at its height in the 1920s, right? So at the time, I think the Klan said their membership was around one million people. Um, that's possible. Or, you know, maybe they were inflating their numbers. Um, but we do what we do know is that in 1925, 50,000 Klan members marched in broad daylight in Washington, D.C. Um, now, today, on the other hand, uh, KKK membership is down to about a few thousand. Um, in my opinion, that's still far too many. Um, but, but again, it's, it's, it's a huge decrease from the Klan's peak in the early 20th century. Um, and, you know, I, you could say, well, that was 1920, that was 100 years ago. Um, but we don't even really have to go back that far. Uh, there were actually way more far-right militia groups in this country in the 1990s than there are now. So in 1996, there were an estimated 858 militia groups that were active in the U.S. Um, but by 2000, there were only around 200. Uh, so again, we see a decline there. Um, and I want to mention that even though militia activity did go up somewhat during Obama's term, uh, Obama's two terms, militias never really regained the numbers that they had in the 90s. And, you know, even even just looking to the Trump era under Trump's term, the far right was it is extremely fragmented. Um, far right groups splintered even more after Charlottesville. Um, if any of you guys remember the traditionalist Workers Party, that was one of the prominent neo-Nazi groups at Char Charlottesville. Um, they've completely disbanded uh, the so-called alt-right, which, of course, was led by Richard Spencer, among various others, um, is, is basically back behind their computer screens now and out of the streets. 
Um, and, you know, when you think about different far right elements that uh, are, are still active, like, you know, militias, Proud Boys, various neo-Nazi skinheads and like just your garden variety racists. Um, I, I think the good news kind of is that they, they really don't get along with each other. And um, another way of putting that is uh, they're really just as prone to sectarianism as the left. Um, so I, you know, I think a lot about something that uh, Michael Brooks used to say, which is that on the left, we should really claim our wins or celebrate our victories where we can. Um, and I don't think that has to mean giving into triumphalism, um, but it does mean being clear eyed about the progress that has been made and also really trying to understand the strength and the scope of reactionary movements today without any sensationalism. So, um, you know, when we look at something like the recent Capitol riots, I think the question to ask is, you know, maybe maybe less, is this a coup? Is this not a coup? Is this fascism? Is this not fascism? Um, but rather to ask uh, whether what happened was a genuine expression of political power or whether it was something else. Um, and since this is a Jacobin show, I just want to quickly shout out two recent Jacobin articles that I think offer a really useful perspective on what happened at the Capitol. So the first is uh, by Raphael Cat Chaturian and Stephen Mayer, and they point out that pretty much the entire political class and the corporate sector immediately align themselves against the Capitol rioters. So this is a very different political situation than, for instance, um, the rise of German or Italian fascism in the 1930s, where you see very severe splits within the ruling class uh, that allows fascists to seize power. Um, and the other the other Jacobin article I wanted to quickly mention is by Danny Bessner and Amber Frost, uh, who have been guests on this channel before. And they look specifically at QAnon, uh, you know, the conspiracy theorists, uh, which was a major presence at the Capitol riot. And they make the case that QAnon is really more of a cult rather than a political movement proper. Right. Uh, so I want to read a quote from their article. They write. Q has neither the direction, means, nor ability to coordinate the networks required to overtake the American state, nor do they seem especially interested in governing. And so I think that both of these articles together are really valuable um, because neither of them are dismissing far-right violence. I think what they're trying to do is... Uh, they're trying to contextualize it in order to figure out how to defeat it beyond simply sounding the alarm, right? And um, most crucially, both of these articles argue that uh, simply restoring the, you know, bipartisan neoliberal consensus, uh, which, as we mentioned earlier, uh, seems to be what Biden uh, is eager to 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 get going, um, isn't that's not really going to do the trick um, because this political this political consensus is, after all, what sort of produces austerity and inequality, which are the very underlying conditions that help give rise to fringe movements in the first place. Uh, so I think I want to wrap up there. Um, but I, I do want to first mention that, you know, of course, there have been moments in history in the US where vigilante violence did transform into some kind of political power. And I think the most the most famous example of this is the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of the Jim Crow era. Um, so during this era, there's, of course, a surge of extrajudicial white supremacist violence in the South, right as the North is starting to abandon the project of Reconstruction. Um, and during this time, the US is also beginning a period of imperial expansion overseas that relies heavily on kind of this notion of white racial superiority. So one of the foremost experts on Reconstruction, of course, is the historian Eric Foner. So I want to play a short clip where he discusses the end of Reconstruction. You, what you might say is under Reconstruction, 
The political revolution went forward, but the economic revolution did not. But the political revolution was revolutionary enough that it inspired a wave, as I said, of terrorist violence in the South. The Klan and other groups, the White League, the Knights of the White Committee, they were, all, they were local organizations all over the place. But they were all basically devoted to using violence to restore white supremacy. They used assassination, arson, assault. It's a melancholy fact that probably more American citizens were killed by the Klan and such groups in Reconstruction than Osama bin Laden managed to kill. So it was not a small-scale uh, problem. Um, and eventually, these Reconstruction governments, one by one, were overthrown, partly because of violence in the South, but also because of a retreat in the North from this principle of equality. By the 1870s, partly stimulated by a deep economic depression, which began in 1873, um, Northerners began to lose interest in Reconstruction. Some of them began to say, you know, these Southern whites are right. I don't know if blacks really can be involved in government. Uh, these governments seem to be corrupt, something like that. And eventually, in 1877, as part of the settlement of the disputed election of 1876, um, Republican and Democratic national leaders reached a deal, the compromise or the bargain of 1877, in which fundamentally, this is a quick little explanation of a big, a much more complicated thing, Republicans retained control of the national government, but the entire South was now under the control of the old, of the Democratic Party. So, you know, I, I think what's significant about uh, this example of the end of Reconstruction is that it really shows that vigilante violence flourishes or has the potential to really change the political landscape when the state retreats from a principle of equality, as Eric Foner eloquently put it. So um, I, I think that means at the end of the day, uh, defeating the far right and extremist violence is going to depend on our ability to not just raise consciousness, but to actually change the conditions that allow extremism to take root. And changing those conditions ultimately, of course, is going to depend on us winning some kind of political power. Um, so I, I think I'll stop there. Uh, as I mentioned, we have Jane McAlevey coming on uh, a little later who, you know, can talk at, more at length about what it means to build political power um, and and or what it looks like to get moving on that project. Um, but I will wrap up for now and turn it over to Paul. Yeah, I really appreciated the um, historical perspective. And, and, I, and I understand for many people why it is kind of a frustrating answer for us to say, well, I don't know. I mean, the, the best thing we can do is try to, you know, bring about um, equality and redistribution of wealth and power. Um, you know, and I think the big question for me is like, are we witnessing a, you know, a warm up act to a point where this vigilante violence is connected to real power, you know, where they're being used as the shock troops or, you know, are we not? I mean, I think that's right. an open question. And, and of course, a lot of that depends on how, you know, we act. Right. Um, yeah. So let's get to what, uh, what, what can our side do? Uh, what is something productive that is not uh, vigilante violence that we can be doing? Um, so, you know, when it comes to the results of the 2020 election, there's not really much the left can get excited about, even with the surprising results in Georgia. You know, we staved off the worst outcome of a second Trump term, but Biden has made very clear that he has no intention of even entertaining the universal demands the left is for. 
But we did see some bright spots, especially when we look at ballot measures. The minimum wage hike in Florida has gotten a lot of attention, but I'm going to talk about a ballot measure victory that I think was even more significant for the left. And that is um, Proposition 208 in Arizona. So Proposition 208 raises taxes on the wealthiest Arizonians in order to dramatically increase funding for public education. Specifically, it will raise $940 million for public schools annually. And it does this by putting in place a 3.5% surcharge for income above $250,000 for individuals and $500,000 for households. So in other words, 99% of Arizonians will not see any increase in their taxes, even the majority of small business owners. And the, the movement for Proposition 208 has roots in the Red for Red movement, if you remember that thing. Um, and I know it seems like a very long time ago, but just two years ago, several states had massive teacher strikes for higher wages and more education funding. And Arizona was one of those states. And let's take a look at a clip from Arizona. Yeah, Pat and Stella, take a look at all these people down Congress Street in downtown Tucson. We have covered a lot of protests here over the years. I'll tell you this much, this one feels the most festive. There are bands here, there are people laughing and cheering, but they say don't be confused. These teachers and their supporters say they are not going anywhere, and they want Governor Doug Ducey and other lawmakers in Phoenix to know that they mean business when it comes to getting the salary and classroom funding they feel they deserve. Now, joining us now is president of the Tucson Education Association, Jason Fried. Jason, thanks for being with us today. What's the message that you and these teachers want to send to Governor Ducey tonight? We are tired of being last. Arizonans deserve better. Our kids deserve better. He has shortchanged us by $1.1 billion, and we're tired of it. We're seeing stickers and signs here in downtown that say, I don't want to strike, but I will. Is there talk of a teacher strike in Arizona right now? There's talk of everything. What there's talk of is getting our community to be involved in this because we know our community values the education that our kids are receiving. We've got to do better. Arizona's deserve to be first. The legislative session ends in a couple of weeks now. What's coming between now and then so you guys can make your message heard? Are you hoping for real legislative action? What we need is we need to stop having the insults. A 1.08% is not going to move the needle. We need the governor, we need the legislature to make a serious financial commitment, and we can't talk about some other day today. So they eventually did go on a strike and they made some really impressive wins. Teachers won a 20% pay increase spread out over multiple years and partially restored $400 million in education spending that was previously cut. Um, the strike was an explosion of anger and frustration that had been building for a long time. Between 2000 and 2018, teacher salaries had decreased at a rate of 3.5% per year. The number of, of teachers in the state has decreased by 1.5% per year. And the student-teacher ratio had increased by almost 2% yearly. So in other words, lower wages, larger class sizes, less funding, and higher teacher turnover. And the 2008 recession was using as an excuse to accelerate the cuts, despite the fact that the economy in Arizona was actually growing during much of this time. More than $2 billion was cut from education in Arizona in the last 10 years. But even with the wins of the teacher strike, it's not anywhere close to restoring all the cuts that have been made over the last 20 years. This is where Proposition 208 comes in. It would begin to reverse the corporate welfare that has existed for so long in the state. And by corporate welfare, I mean like when in 2011, corporations got another round of tax cuts and the fact that 74% of Arizona corporations pay $50 or less in state income taxes. And to no one's surprise, the Arizona Chamber of Commerce is, of course, leading the charge or they led the charge against raising taxes on the wealthiest, 
Let's look at some of their talking points. We all support increased funding for education. But Glenn Hammer, president and CEO of the Arizona Chamber of Commerce, does not think Prop 208 is the right way to go about it. This is the Small Business Destruction Act. Over half of the filers hit by this are small businesses. And these businesses employ about 58 percent of our state's private sector employees. The state still has not recovered the nearly 140,000 jobs lost since the pandemic hit. And Hammer claims that slapping the rich with a higher tax bill will make an economic recovery that much harder. Let's look at how this will actually affect small businesses and even very affluent individuals. Um, So as you see, the average income of small business owners is $49,000 per year, and they will see no increase in their taxes from Proposition 208. Even dentists and lawyers don't have anything to worry about. Another charge is that there is no accountability for where this money goes, no plan for how this will actually translate to improving the quality of education. Again, that's nonsense. The movement published a detailed outline of how this money will be used. And as you can see there, you know where the money is going, what it's used for, how that's going to improve education. So activists in Arizona, they organize phone banks, virtual house parties, petition drives, and education campaigns. They built a powerful coalition that included the Arizona AFL-CIO, the United Food and Commercial Workers, Arizona Educators uh, Association, Arizona Pipe Trades, Arizona Firefighters, Parent Teachers Association, and most importantly, they won. I think the left should seriously consider pursuing tax-rich ballot initiatives in the future. We need to figure out how to translate victories on the shop floor and in the labor movement into the legislative and electoral arena. Proposition 208 is a great example of that. And I think many on the left feel a sense of demoralization and loss of direction since the end of the Bernie campaign. But I think it's time now to stop licking our wounds and throw ourselves into the fight against austerity and taking back the wealth that workers have collectively created. These tax rich ballot initiatives have strategic and organizational values. And I'll start with this strategic. We're facing a deep post-COVID economic recession, and states and cities are already talking about austerity. And let's be clear, by austerity, we mean mass layoffs, destroying public sector unions, cuts to public school funding, cuts to public transit, and all kinds of public services, and a further decline of our infrastructure. And let's take a step back and think, what is our task as socialists or even progressives? We want to unite the broadest coalition of working people possible to take on the rich and democratize society. Austerity will affect all working people and engaging in this work helps us build this coalition. These kind of tax rich ballot drives help polarize politics along class lines and identify local corporate villains. You can target behemoths like Comcast, Amazon and Walmart and connect how corporate power negatively affects people's everyday lives. These campaigns also help us cultivate the allies that we want. All kinds of public sector unions and community organizations will have an interest in funding public services, especially as the situation becomes more desperate for public workers. These unions may be looking to form alliances they ordinarily may not seek out. And you hear a lot that organizations on the left are not connected enough and rooted in working class communities. And this is in many ways true. These kind of ballot initiatives are an opportunity to engage with and mobilize all kinds of communities to challenge the logic of austerity and neoliberal economics. And so on on the organizational front, I'm a DSA member, so I'm kind of thinking with a DSA hat on, but this could apply to any left or progressive organization. Many people are thinking now, you know, what do organizations like DSA do in the the post-burning moment? What kind of non-electoral work can the left do? 
Um, you know, these groups are experiencing a massive influx of new members and are dealing with the problem of what to have these members doing. How do we keep them active and engaged? These kind of ballot initiatives help people develop certain organizing and canvassing skills. It's also a good way to use the infrastructure organizations have built. Many DSA chapters have built up fantastic canvassing structures they've used to elect candidates or campaign on issues like Medicare for All. Or if you don't have this infrastructure yet, you could build it up through a ballot campaign. Just imagine if a group like DSA combined its canvassing infrastructure with a union like Unite Here that did amazing voter turnout during the election on a campaign to tax the rich. That's a very powerful alliance and just the kind of common work that we want to be doing with our allies. And we need to pursue campaigns that are ambitious, but also winnable so that working people can experience the kind of impact left-wing policies have on their everyday lives. And like Arizona has shown us, campaigns to tax the rich to fund public services are both possible and winnable and popular. To be clear, I'm not saying this is some kind of silver bullet that will suddenly solve all the left's problems. Um, You know, some states have laws and some cities have laws that make ballot initiatives toothless and ineffective. Or maybe groups in a certain area already have big campaigns on other issues that are in the works. But it is one tool in our toolbox we can use to increase our power in society beyond electoral politics. And I'll, I'll end by addressing the common right wing talking point that, you know, you just can't throw the money at the problem of education. You know, you throw money at it, that won't solve the real issues. So let's be very clear about why this revenue is needed and what it will be used for. I, I teach in the school district of Philadelphia and About five or six years ago, we faced a round of brutal budget cuts that left many schools without on-duty nurses. Two students died in one school year from asthma attacks that could have been saved if there was an on-duty nurse. Many of our buildings are 80, 90, 100 years old. They're infested with mold, lead, and asbestos. Just last year, two schools had to be relocated in the Philadelphia district because of the asbestos problem. A few years ago, a roof of a high school caved in after heavy rain. My first year teaching, I was in a building where we had to put out buckets whenever it rained to catch water. And it's not uncommon for there to be 40 students or more in a classroom. This has become the norm for urban and rural school districts across the country. Just imagine adding another wave of austerity and funding cuts onto our present conditions. So we're really talking about a crisis situation and even a life and death situation for public school students. And taxing the rich is the only way to get out out of this crisis. And I'm glad Arizona has showed us the way that this is possible. And I think this is something we should really um, take up seriously in the future. I don't know what you think, Jen. I'll throw it to you. I really appreciated that because, you know, I, I think that, as you said, in the last election, there were quite a few ballot initiatives that uh, were sort of unexpected uh, hits, right? Like Arizona, like you mentioned, um, Colorado had a paid leave initiative that passed. Um, you mentioned Florida, uh, a supermajority of voters passed a $15 minimum wage. And uh, you mentioned this as well, but tax the rich initiatives are actually really popular. Um, I think that, you know, even Republicans uh, consistently poll at like 45 percent, 55 percent who say that they actually support higher taxes on corporations and the wealthy. So um, I know you've said before, like tax taxing the rich like isn't as sexy as some, you know, other uh, kind of campaigns that we frequently hear about, um, but it's popular. And I think that's really important. Um, so I guess I have 
sort of one follow-up question for you, and we can bring on Jane soon to talk about this as well, but on the subject of ballot measures, so as you were saying, there were some hits, but there were also some misses, right? Like the big one is in California, Proposition 22, uh, which was the gig workers bill that uh, classified rideshare and delivery app workers as uh, as independent contractors rather than employees, which of course strips them of a lot of important mm-hmm. labor protections. Um, and I think in, in Illinois, there was a tax the rich ballot measure that did not pass uh, partly because there was this like evil Illinois billionaire who just poured tons of money into fighting that ballot measure. Um, so I guess I I don't know if there's like a question there, but like, right. like it, it just kind of seems like dangerous, you know? <laughs> or yeah, like I mean, and again, like I said, I don't I don't see this as some kind of like silver bullet. Right. And, you know, you know, also in California. And I, I'm eager to get Jane on to ask her about that, but, um, you know, it, that failed as well. Now, I think some of these, you might have to go case by case. I did hear in California that with COVID, like they couldn't do the organizing that they would have done and needed to do to really break through all the money. Um, and with Proposition 22, like we know with any of these things, the, the Chamber of Commerce, Commerce, the business elite, they're going to throw in as much money and resources mm-hmm. as possible. Um, you know, and, that, and I think that speaks to the only way to win these things is really to organize. Um, and I see a lot of potential, keyword being potential, in these areas where, you know, maybe some progressive organizations already have a robust canvassing infrastructure they've already used. You combine that with some unions that are experienced with, you know, really doing heavy turnout. Um, I, I see a potential powerful alliance there. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think you're right to bring that up. Again, there were failures of this stuff in the election. Um you know, but I mean, I, hopefully I, people have learned from, you know, whatever went wrong in these campaigns. I think the thing that to me is most interesting about ballot measures is they often seem to do well in red or purple states, right? Like, so right. Arizona for one, um, I know also, I've talked about yeah. this on the show before, so people are probably sick of it, but Idaho is a deep red state that passed a Medicaid expansion a few years ago. Um, and then of course, Florida sort of famously voted for Trump, but passed the $15 uh, minimum wage ballot measure. So, right. And also, you know, think about, how, you know, increasingly things are polarized so much partisan lines. But exactly. when you take out, I think for many people, like if they have the Democrat next to their name, forget it. I don't even want to hear your next sentence. But if you take that out of the equation and focus on the issues, you know, I'm a little bit more optimistic about that. And I think that's that's another powerful thing is that it can possibly cut through this like heavily partisan environment. You know, you're not talking about a candidate, a personality or even a party, you're, you're talking about, you know, what is the issue? Right. Literally just the issue. Right. Yeah. Um, um, well, on that note, I think that we have Jane McAlevey with us. So hi, Jane. Welcome. Hey. Hi. So I think that uh, lots of our Jacobin viewers are probably familiar with your work already, um, but I just want to quickly give an introduction. So Jane McAlevey has been an organizer and negotiator in the labor movement for over 20 years. Uh, She's also the strikes correspondent for The Nation, the senior policy fellow at UC Berkeley's Labor Center, and author of the books Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, No Shortcuts, and her latest, A Collective Bargain. So Jane, uh, welcome to The Jacobin Show. I'm super excited to be here on this um, actually important, strange day. Important, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's yeah. An important day. 
So on that note, before you jumped on, Paul and I were talking about the inauguration, which we both watched and thought was a little boring. Uh, But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on just like the last days of the Trump era or the inauguration, if you watched it. You know, um, surprisingly, the the thing that made me like jump up and down out of my seat today was actually when the uh, evil one got on that airplane and left. Like I actually I was like already doing a series of meetings and I and I had like you know, the New York Times feed going on in the background. And I thought, I literally was like, get on the plane, get on it, get on it. And I felt like this great sense of relief when he just mm-hmm. got on that plane and they shut the door. So that was um, in its own way more exciting, I think, than almost everything else that happened today. <laughs> right, right. But, but I don't want to pass that moment. By the way, yeah. it's a big deal. Like, I do feel like it's a really big deal um, at so many levels that he actually is out of there. And mm-hmm. before we get to what's coming and how much work we have to do and how much work we have to do, like him being gone, I just, we just shouldn't miss the moment to celebrate that and just like exhale collectively for you know a few hours. Like right. that's, I mean, I would say there were many times this fall uh, when it wasn't clear to me at all that he would be leaving um, on that helicopter or that airplane. So. Uh, it's a it's it's a game changer for us in the sense of both how much work we have to do, but how much possibility there is. And um, that's all it is. And that's all it's ever been. Getting him out of there once Bernie was not the candidate, you know, getting him out was literally about could we live to fight another day and not die in the streets, be murdered, be killed uh, and a lot and a lot of things that are actually happening to people, you know, so um I definitely think my as much cynicism and realism as we can sort of jam into a discussion about how hard the work is going to be right now, I don't want to miss that I definitely mm-hmm. like exhaled in a really big way today when he boarded that plane. So that's about what happened in the morning. Um, I did watch, you know, the after I did watch sort of the pomp and circumstance officially um, thought Lady Gaga nailed it. Frankly, that was uh, that was like, whoa! Can she sing anyway? Okay, let's get serious though. But um, yeah, no, it wasn't. I mean, I can't say there was much that was exciting except watching Trump leave. Um, and my expectations were set fairly low, like Trump would leave, uh, and he's out, and it's a big deal. So the question is, what do we do, right, moving forward? So I would say, yeah, I I don't want to under. I don't think we should downplay or undervalue that it wasn't clear we would win two seats in Georgia. I definitely, mm. I definitely, yeah. and like that moment just got so buried in right. the and these idiots. Like, and I think in some ways Georgia might be a good segue to talk about what you guys were already hitting on earlier, like base building and what does it mean to be ready and prepared and know how to win uh, versus just shouting from the sidelines about shit we want, which isn't really useful. Right. Yeah. So let's get into that. Um, <laughs> but you know, um, my, the first question I'll pose, um, you know, whenever there is a right wing action, like what happened at the Capitol, there's always these renewed calls on the left to, quote, fight the right. And so my fear with this is that I think a lot of times people are thinking this in too narrow of a way, like just confronting groups like the Proud Boys. And I I said this on the last show, but I've been to many of these rallies where I'm confronting 30 pathetic middle aged white dudes. And I don't really feel like I've done much, to be honest, to fight fascism. So. I guess for you, what does fight the right actually mean? Like, how do we undermine the far right space? Well, Prop 2A, it's a good start. Like the thing that you were closing on, 
right, on Proposition 208, I actually think that's a really good place to start because it is not enough to feel good about going to a rally and feeling like we're going up against these guys, right? Satisfying in the moment, but not really. Um, it rem That reminds me, Paul, of sort of when you go to some teeny little protests and people are chanting, this is what democracy looks like. And I'm always like, not really. I mean, not my vision of it. You know what I mean? It's not a few of us out on the street yelling. It's like actually passing 208. It's taxing the rich. It's it's not just having a vision about fighting to restore 25 or 30 years of cuts, which on a good day, if we're honest, a lot of in the trade union sector, but also in civil rights, et cetera, right? It's like restore the Voting Rights Act, you know, restore the right to collective bargaining and restore uh, the right for you to walk into a school building in Philadelphia and have basic functions in the building work. And that's, I'm tired of it, frankly. You know what I mean? Like if we're going to get past making the kind of demands that are transformative, that people need, that all of us need right now, it's way beyond. I'm sick and tired of like, let's just fight and get divided and nibble over the edges of like, is Medicaid going to get refunded at the state level or will the teacher's contracts get refunded? That is like crap at this point, right? We need to like stand back and say, coming out of this the dueling pandemics of like the Trump era, if we look at that as just one giant pandemic of racist, white nationalist, dividing and conquering, uh, death on so many fronts, kids in cages, babies separated. I mean, I really feel like the whole four years was a sort of pandemic of its own. Um, and then the actual pandemic where we have just sacrificed 400,000 untold workers. You know, it's time for us to say coming out of this pandemic, uh, we are actually going to make a demand for a different kind of a better, a, a seriously real and better society. And that to me is about that's that's a better way to fight the right. Right. Like I, I'm not interested in getting into I mean, it feels satisfying once more to actually fight them. Having been in those moments in our life, probably all, most of us, at least I have, you know, physically fighting them like uh, I want to beat them on taxes. Um, mm -hmm. I want to not lose um, against Uber and Lyft and Airbnb. Uh, I want the left to stop uh, just complaining um, about how bad things are and actually figure out how to win. And that's why I think the segue was really nice. But Jen, what you were saying about sort of vigilante violence, but also that nice segue into Paul talking about 208. Um, and I, I, maybe just on the California question of 20. Yeah, I was just about to ask. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really painful subjects. But I, so I want to be grounded in a minute for a minute to say, I'm not sure about I'm not sure about one piece of analysis I'm about to put out. I'm going to positive a thought though, which is like when you were saying Idaho, Florida, Colorado, the places that we that we won um, in the ballot initiatives this year. To some to some degree, I'm a little bit worried that in a lot of those red states or reddish states, depending on the state, Idaho, you know, where we've won a few of these ballot initiatives in the last few years, I'm a little bit concerned that it's partly because it's like the tactic is new newer in those places. Whereas in California, mm -hmm. where the land of propositions um, is like really installed in the ethos of the electorate, the truth is it's not so cool. And if you look at the history of the ballot initiative process in California, the left and progressive mostly lose. That's a fact. So when people say, oh, California, that's so cool because you can introduce ballot initiatives. I'm like, the, fa the fact is the right and the conservative side of the aisle has won more ballot initiatives or defeated more of ours than we ever have come close to winning from the ballot initiative strategy. So 
you know, yes and like yes and let's be clear about what we're doing when I 22 I think was going to be sorry for folks who don't know the numbers 22 is the Uber Lyft I'll just call it the Uber Lyft um, DoorDash bought and paid for ballot initiative and usurping of democracy in the state of California um, it was to overturn with very egregious rules attached to it which frankly shouldn't even be legal um, the best most proactive. Um, sort of anti-gig worker legislation in the country, right? That's what Prop 22 was overturning. Um, it was the, it, the the spending limits were completely insane, off the charts. Um, and so a, a caution um, is that no one has yet, Uber and Lyft, by the way, and Airbnb and like a San Francisco ballot initiative a couple of years ago and a couple more local ones in California. Every place we see getting to ballot reform is something in our dream boat here. Like every time... One of those companies uh, goes out in a fight. Not, not only do they spend more money than any of us can even lay our eyeballs on to defeat workers and the community. They also, in some ways, have they're pulling off like a cap, what in labor we call a captive audience meeting. Like they've got lists they're using. They're literally turning their consumer lists into huge voter rolls. So there's there's a huge danger about the gig economies, how much information they have and how they're using it. And, you know, in the labor context, whenever I think about Uber and Lyft using their consumer list and their workers list, like forcing workers to take certain positions or drivers, I should say, who are workers, by the way, in my opinion, um, you know, they have ridiculous. The deck is so stacked against us. So um, and then so that's on 22, just just ridiculous. Um, and then and then on, on what was Prop 15 in California. The truth is we came incredibly close, so close that it's really, it's, it's, it's so frustrating how close we came. It's like when you get smashed, I don't know, when I'm running a vote count too in, in a labor context, it's, I mean, I remember losing an election by two votes, like a big hospital election by two votes. I have to tell you, that's when you want to go put your head in the oven. And that's how Prop 15 felt to me, because we were this close despite the pandemic and despite that we knew we'd be outspent and despite it. We had an organizing theory, which was very much built around running out of schools as the center of the get up the vote operation and of the ground troops and the final push. And that was evaporated by the pandemic. So, you know, that was a hard that was a hard loss. But I love I mean, let me just step back and say one more comment about this. Part of where, Paul, I think you were going with your comment about 208, which I'll close this on uh, as we go forward, is something I believe a lot. We need the left and progressives need a lot more yes and no contestations all the time like that. And so in the labor movement, we have them built in. We have contracts that expire. We have elections. We have do, we have all sorts of things that like force constant tests and assessments of are we are we actually building unity, not mouthing off about it? Have we actually built majority support? Have we actually built supermajority support? And in the non-labor left, unless you're doing straight political campaign work and engaging in primaries, like if you're doing that, then you get a sense of what I mean. But the vast majority of people who call themselves leftists or progressives are involved in no test of whether or not they know how to win. So we need way more of it. And 208 was a good example of that. So I'm for way more of them. We just have to go into it clear headed about the power needed to win. Right. I, I, I do have do one follow-up follow question, question about Prop 22, Prop though. Um, I think, you know, something that is very troubling for me is that it it will probably be used as a precedent, right, in other states. Um, so my question for you is, how do we combat that going forward? 
Yeah. The one is, and I, I saw a newsflash about this already, and I'm pretty excited about it. You know, the first thing is, and I, I, I uh, you know, I write, I love writing for Jacobin. I write also <laughs> for The Nation. I wrote in The Nation recently that, like, in the first 100 days, on day one, we needed him to fire Peter Robb, the general counsel to the National Labor Relations Board. And not because I wrote it. Apparently, actually, it works. <laughs> no, but actually, the letter was sent to him saying, yeah, evilness right there. That is the face of evil. But he apparently was sent a letter to either resign or be fired by five o'clock today. And I got to tell you, that, surprise. that hello and possibility like mm -hmm. that alone, like people said to me, there is no there's no way he's going to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And even I was like, I would I would be shocked. You know what I mean? It happened today. So that that is not little like I, I'm surprised that they took in a move as bold as that's considered a bold move. It's only happened once before in all of history that someone reached out and said to the general counsel who technically is in power until November of this year, like resign politely or get out. That's happened once in our history uh, since 1935. And it happened today. I mean, for the second time only, I think it's a really, the first time it happened was the response to the passage of Taft Hartley. And it's happened again right now. So I, I don't think that's little. And that, forget watching the TV earlier today, reading like an hour ago that they sent that letter to Peter Robb at the National Relations mm -hmm. Board does make me feel like dancing briefly uh, on the table because it's a big deal. Um, it's a big deal not just because Peter Robb is an insult to every worker in this country. It's a big deal because it was bold action. Mm -hmm. right. So that's exciting. Just saying that like that. And that, so that's so that th that I got to that, Jen, because the very there's so many implications for Prop 22 and the gig economy uh, based on Peter Robb being there and Peter Robb not being there, just for starters. Mm -hmm. um, we definitely I mean, I've definitely talked to a bunch of the drivers and the drivers movement. Right. Like we definitely need to not allow 22. There's two things we need it to not allow to be. One is a precedent for other bad laws. The second is for behind the scenes deal cutting. Mm -hmm. uh, that leave drivers out of the decisions about their future. Um, and that's where the Biden administration becomes really key. Like they could just enact, they could write executive orders and take a bunch of actions to the Department of Labor and the NLRB um, that just trap Uber and Lyft um, and don't let this thing expand and start reversing it. So there's, so the Peter Robb action today is not, is not to be diminished either in terms of it being an exciting, if it's a one-off, too bad. But I'm not going to decide on day one six hours in that that's a one-off that was a good move yeah not bad yeah. if he does another thing i might dust off my riding for biden sign <laughs> not yet i could do a few more a few more um so that's kind of a good segue i mean to get to kind of labor specifically um so there's a kind of a lot of excitement right now about the pro act um so i kind of have two questions rolled in here so can you first talk about what was the employee free choice act and why did it fail to pass under Obama where there was similar hope about it? Um, and then can you explain what is the PRO Act and how should the labor movement go about this so we don't lose this time? One is a lot easier than the other. Right. But okay. The Employee Free Choice Act, um, EFCA, as it was always referred to back in the day, and that day was 2007, 2006, especially 2007. The Employee Free Choice Act was the singular demand, functionally, singular demand, that a, a slightly more united, slightly more united uh, national trade union movement made of um, Obama slash Biden, 
the Obama-Biden administration, um, coming into 2008 during the campaign. The Employee Free Choice Act essentially restored fairness, pretty simple demand, but actually pretty profound, restored fairness um, to essentially level the playing field in union elections. It called for like a faster, easier process by which workers can form unions. I, I'm still struck every single day of my life that the vast majority of people, even progressives, like you just look at it from social media and stuff, have no idea, um, like no idea at all, seriously how hard it is for workers to form new unions in this country. So the Employee Free Choice Act uh, would have allowed majority, what's called majority card count. So a majority of workers produce uh, 51% of, of membership cards out of the total, what's called the bargaining unit, right? To try and say out of lingo, but the workers were eligible to vote. Um, if you put forward a majority of those names on cards saying that we want to form the union, uh, the union is formed. Like you avoid the messy election process, which I think people in this country are starting to get a better, a slightly better informed sense of how hard it is to win a union election because the worst of what's come out in the civil elections in the last couple of years is what happens in every union election. Division, voter suppression, list uh, rigging, gerrymandering. I mean, every single concept that's been playing out in the U.S. election system was pioneered, refined, and perfected in stopping workers from voting to form unions. So um, EFCA was a lot of problems. One is I'm saying EFCA for a reason, because I always said at the time it was terrible to refer to it that way and that it was, um, it sounded like a social disease. You know what I mean? Like EFCA, what the hell was that? And there was never any rank and file involvement. That may be true of the PRO Act too, but there was very little connection between like, like the Employee Free Choice Act was like, the imagination of some lawyers and some top leaders. And never was there really a discussion with like workers writ large or the broader community about like, what do we need? So it was sort of the one and only demand placed on the administration, which I think itself was a problem, that that was like our, all of our ambition was that, um, not canceling mortgage debt, uh, not, uh, you know, I mean, there's a million things that the labor could be demanding, like cancel all mortgage debt, like every Ill illegitimate piece of debt that was, and I'm talking about, mortgage debt from the 08 crash, right? From the last crash. So, um, so it was, but it was, a, it was more limited than the PRO Act. So that was the Employee Free Choice Act. It got nowhere. I mean, they came in and made the decision to do um, healthcare. Uh, and that was sort of it. It was like the Biden people like used every chip they had trying to pass healthcare. Um, and we got the Affordable Care Act as it exists better than nothing, but you know what I mean? And that was it. There was, there was essentially no really serious, union or workers and unions, which is the power that we need, right? Workers and unions is a power shift. There was nothing more really given to unions from Biden um, and Obama until 20, late 2014, when they finally passed at the National Labor Relations Board, uh, some subversion of that, like just a faster election and a more fair election process, not card counts, what we call the card count process. Um, and even the faster election process was fantastic. They just did it way too late and it was undone, you know, by Trump, right? So um, the PRO Act is probably the most radical single piece of legislation pro-worker, um, pro-worker power, I keep saying power and workers, pro-worker power, um, single piece of legislation that's been introduced, I think, since Taft-Hartley. It goes way further than the Employee Free Choice Act. Um, it restores bargaining. It, I mean, it's it's got a it's like every it's like a wish list of almost everything you want shoved into one piece of legislation. The good news is it frames out what we want. 
The challenging news, of course, is we haven't been able to pass labor law reform basically ever <laughs> since Taft-Hartley. So we didn't pass it under Carter, Clinton, Obama. Um, and the question is, what's going to be different now? Right. H- how could things be different um, in this moment that would actually allow us to pass progressive labor law reform? I think if we fire Peter Robb and get a good National Labor Relations Board and get a good Department of Labor and get a functioning Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and there's like a long list, like that's going to go a hell of a, lot, a long way. If the National Labor Relations Board got, a, you know, a pro worker, a, a fair human, uh, a fair general counsel um, and a fair board, uh, workers would be forming unions like crazy in this country. It's kind of that it's that straightforward when you've got a fair elections process. Workers in this country want unions. And the only reason that we don't have them is because it's freaking impossible uh, right now to exercise that right in this country. It's like the Jim Crow South in the workplace every damn day, not just actually if you're black, but I mean, in terms of trying to get out of it, it's a totally constraining system. So. So on that note, Jane, um, you know, what uh, Biden has sort of announced that he's going to pick Marty Walsh as his labor secretary. And um, Marty Walsh is somebody who, you know, obviously comes from the labor movement. He has the backing of a lot of labor leaders and unions. And so I'm wondering what what would a what would an ambitious but realistic labor agenda look like if Marty Walsh is labor secretary? Mm. I mean, let's just put aside the whole discussion about, like, who else might have been labor secretary? Um, And, you know, in my a few things. One is, I mean, everything we just talked about, like there is so, there are so many things that would be game changers that can be done without congressional authorization right now by taking really good control of the, of the national relations board, really good control of the department of labor and moving fast and not slowly. Like, like, like even let's say it's Marty Walsh, even just coming in and saying, we're going to we're going to restore the fast election rule and the fair election rule in unionization elections as fast as we can. All these things, all the paperwork actually takes more time than people sort of understand. But let's just say they just start the clock on that right now. And if and if we if if union organizers and workers who are trying to form unions actually had a fair uh, process to form their union uh, quickly, uh, I predict that we would actually have wild increases um, in unionization. We could have that by next year um, if they restored fair and fast election rules. That's within the agency. Um, and I think one thing that's interesting in all the back and forth about who should be the labor secretary, I mean, it's interesting about Marty Walsh is that he comes out of, you know, he was a building trades leader. Um, and the building trades are sadly not often uh, too, too, too infrequently in progressive conversations. Um, and that's a historic era on our part that every every person we know isn't going to work for the building trades, going to take a good job in the construction trades and um, to help reform uh, and build stronger unions that are more progressively aligned. But Marty Walsh was a really decent trade union leader in the building trades in the Boston area. Um, and that's that's that should not be underestimated in terms of like that. He knows how to do this work. Not only was he a good trade union leader who built a real and decent union, 
but he also governed that way as mayor. Like the person who the, the successor in his in his building trades union is also a brilliant building trades union leader. The building trades of Greater Boston, like the Confederation of the Building Trades of Greater Boston, has been one of the most progressive building trades forces um, in the country uh, in recent in my recent experience. Um, so that to me, that's encouraging. So what what does that mean? I think the Green New Deal, unless I unless I'm on the wrong page, the Green New Deal is something we'd really like to win, <laughs> not just like to win, but we think it's life saving, like planet saving in the short term. So there's something very attractive to me about the possibility that we've got a building trades leader who can move a jobs agenda um, as a Green New Deal agenda in a way that very few other people may have the strategic capacity to do. Marty can talk legitimate. No. I'm acting like the guy, someone I know, by the way, I don't, but I do know, I do know the leader who replaced him really well, actually, um, and have done work with them and they're tremendous. So um, there's an image I wish I should have sent it in to show you, but there's an incredibly beautiful image. This speaks to who the Boston building trades are in Marty's, like the building trades that Marty Walsh helped build. There was a huge nurses strike two years ago in, in Boston. Um, it was an amazing strike at Bremen women's, uh, I think Tufts, but bring them that. Uh oh, pretty much hospital. It's a huge hospital in Boston. There's a huge strike going on, and uh, on a lunchtime one, you know, strikes are like really fun and really hard. Let me just say for the crowd that's always saying strike, they're really hard and they're really amazing. They're they're unbelievable, but they're also just really hard, and and people get tired by like day two or three, and you gotta figure out how to bring the energy up. And I'm like. The third or fourth day of the strike, there's this incredible image that was not plastered anywhere but social media of this wall of mostly white, but not all, just wall of guys in hard hats marching up the street to the hospital. And all building trades in Boston were called on to put their tools down and march to the nurses to support them. And I'm having chills on my arms right now thinking about the image of that again, because you saw the building trades going out for a bunch of nurses and saying, we're not gonna keep working on your hospital. We're not gonna work on the construction job in this hospital. I mean, technically, legally, there's ways we legally say it, but like that image of deep solidarity of a bunch of men in hard hats going up to a huge nurses strike and saying, we are standing with you sisters every day of this struggle and putting our tools down with you has something to do with the leadership that Marty built in Boston. That's a pretty damn good image. So. I think having him in there, I'm not saying it will, but it leaves a possibility that's pretty strategic about how do you how do you help the, the how do you help the building trades go from resisting the Green New Deal to embracing a radical jobs program that happens to be the Green New Deal. I'm excited by that. Yeah. And uh, we do want to have on at some point the Climate Jobs New York people um, who've done fantastic work on that. Um, but yeah, it looks like I'm still riding with Biden so far. So um, <laughs> yeah, Jane, everyone... you're not making it easy for us. Right, right. Everyone sorry. in the comments. Sorry. Section, comment I'm sorry. And, 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 you know, I'm not attached to that guy at all. I'm attached to like the possibility. Yeah. And I am. But I do. I think it is important that we reward good actions when we see them because we're so good at, like just trashing. Oh, that, that was terrible. That was terrible. I'm going to celebrate this. I want to see the letter that went to Peter Robb. But anyway, um, and Marty, seriously, like having a building trades leader in a moment when we need progressive, pro-family, pro-union, anti-racist building trades, I, I'm, I'm not discouraged by that at all. So, yeah. Um, 
kind of related to that. Um, so, you know, when we, you know, we hear about so many working class people, including union members, supported Trump. And this is another one of those times where there's also a renewed call on the left for, you know, political education, political education of working people, which can mean many different things to different people. Um, so, I mean, two questions. Can you give examples of good political education campaigns? And can you also talk about just how union drives and strikes in themselves can help break down prejudices among individuals and, and workers? Yeah, actually, you answered it in some ways, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna stitch them together because, in fact, it, it didn't come out it didn't come out strongly enough. I don't think, although you were linking it a bit in the 208 discussion again, going back to Arizona and taxing the rich. Part of what I mean, part of what Arizona illustrates um, is something that I'm, you know, keen to say a lot, which is that the more strikes we have, the better our politics are for several reasons. Strikes do build. Solid. Like you can't get to a soup. Well, let me just say, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about symbolic strikes. So let me just take that off the table here. We're not talking about when one person says strike and puts a sign up at a wherever fast food restaurant or something. I'm talking about supermajority strikes for a majority walkout and cause a crisis for capital, right? Knowing how to cause a crisis for capital was the first thing I was taught as a young organizer in the labor movement. You know, when my boss said to me, look, I was like, oh my God, how are we going to win? How are we going to win? How are we going to win? You know, and like my mentor leader at the time was like, relax, like relax, young one, just relax. If, if the workers can create a crisis for the employer, they're going to win. So go figure out how to create a crisis for the employer, right? So that's like writ large. What we have to do right now is be able to actually cause more of a crisis than they do. So building up to a supermajority strike is political education because the buildup to a strike involves doing a lot of what we call structure tests which are mini campaigns along the way to testing and then knowing whether or not you've got and built supermajority power along the way to building supermajority power inside of a workplace in every single strike I've had the pleasure of helping lead or leading and uh, not just strike, but also union election victory or contract campaign that was won before we got to having to pull the trigger on a strike in every single one of them, um, we had to overcome serious racism, serious sexism, uh, serious division, professional, not professional. What do the nurses deserve versus the janitors or the house cleaners in the hospital? Like the employer's number one weapon is division. And I, I like that, you know, Biden was wrapping down unity today, but just saying unity has nothing to do with getting us to unity. So getting to unity involves a lot of organizing work and organizing work, as we were saying earlier, needs to involve yes and no contestation, because when something's on the line, whether your job is on the line, if you're walking off the job or in the case of Georgia, if the future of the entire country was on the line in Georgia in two Senate races recently, can we just applaud the people on the ground in Georgia, by the way, um, the political education comes in the work. Most people, I mean, this may not be true of every Jacobin reader, right? This is a different crowd, but most people uh, don't experience political education as like they pick up a magazine and read it. Not most people. Uh -uh. First of all, they're too damn tired and they fall asleep or the kids are crawling on them or whatever. Like there's pressing demands that get in the way of like, Political education is I'm going to like read about W.E. Du Bois and the end of reconstruction. That's not political education for the vast majority of people, though it'd be beautiful if it was. It's not right now. Um, so political education comes in the form of campaigns when you are forced 
to have conversations and engage in organizing conversations with coworkers who have differences than you, just at the coworker level, before we get to the neighbor level, right? Um, that is the best political education. People learn in action. People don't learn, most people don't learn by sitting around and reading. Some do. Most people learn by actually engaging in direct action. And then the tools that organizers, by which I do not mean people with some professional blah, blah. I mean, people who think and work and act like organizers' jobs is the job of an organizer. And I mean, you know, small O, small J here. The job of someone who acts like an organizer is to expand our base every day. It's to talk to people who don't want to talk to us every day. It's to wake up in the morning and realize our top priority is engaging the thousand out of 3,000 people who have never come to a meeting and don't want to talk to us. Like that's what base expansion is. That's what people in Georgia have been doing for more than several years to get to the victory that we just got. Like, I think when people think like we just won those two Senate seats in Georgia because of like a ton of money was sent in after November until January, no people. That happened because in Georgia, they haven't stopped organizing for several years in Georgia, right? So building a base and then being nimble and smart and having the organizational infrastructure ready to seize the moment and seize opportunities is half of what good organizing is, right? Which is what Georgia was. So the kind of political education I love to do is campaign oriented. And it's by having realistic, smart, nonstop campaigns, whether you're a community-based organization trying to figure out the ballot initiative question, tax the rich, um, a housing affordability issue, cancel the rent, you know, there's got to be a yes or no contestation. And, the, and, the, and people learn by doing, people learn best by taking action. Uh, and that's why, that's the function of campaigns. Campaigning alone is not interesting. Campaigning is tied to small D democracy building, small, small, small site structure building, we call it really foundational. That's how people learn. When you go out and strike, there is no, there's no political education like a strike um, in my experience. Uh, and that's one of many reasons why we need so many more of them is because people overcome their differences and it creates clarity about who our opponent is, who the oppressor is, and who us, who's us and them. That's good political education. And that happens in every tough labor campaign in this country. Yeah, there's something about the, the visceral experience that you won't forget, unlike the book I read last week and forgot already. Um, so speaking of strike, um, I think ever since at least Occupy, um, the left has kind of gotten into this habit of calling for a general strike every other month. Um, and, you know, I think many people are well-meaning. People want to see the value of labor. But can you kind of clarify for people, like, I mean, what it would actually take to get to a general strike? I mean, a few historical examples or just like why that's kind of not the most helpful framework to, to think about. Yeah, um, mostly because we've never actually been we, have, we haven't actually had like a full on general strike. So the idea that we've never had one and that we're just going to go to one like zero to zero to 60, like you hit the, oh, just drive on the ramp now and, and, and get off at the exit called general strike. It's just not how they work. So um, I love the vision of a general strike, as I think you know. Uh, and part of why, like part of why this past fall, um, I and many people, like hundreds of us organized something called a strike school that went on for two months in September um, and October. And the timing was pretty pretty specific for a reason, right? In the lead up to the election, we were partly trying to say, um, 
elections are one important thing we have to do and directly related and tied to them is being strike ready, is living in a strike ready state. Um, so when people call for general strikes, uh, it, it bespeaks just not knowing uh, all the work it's going to take for us to get to them. So uh, what we have had in this country are sort of regional general strikes. We've had city-based, urban-based, sometimes they felt almost statewide. Um, but, but, but if we, if we, if we could even get to strategic strikes where a significant number um, of workers were going out on strike um, in 10 cities in this country, it would, it could have the effect of frankly, almost having a general strike, right? So part of strategy is about identifying um, where we're weak and where we're strong, uh, where there's political opportunity and where there's uh, challenges. Um, and I, I can walk backwards for a minute in one example. When I was national deputy director of healthcare uh, organizing at SEIU, which is a long time ago, um, a long time ago, <laughs> um, you know, we, we actually, I just think most people who haven't had resources and haven't had to do big campaigns um, ha have been, star and that's most of the left, have been starved of like what goes into that kind of a project, which is the best project. How do we get strike ready? Everybody. We, we sat uh, for about a year and a half with a research program with about 30 researchers, right, nationally. This is like big resources. And the task was the assignment that I was given, I mean, a lot of us were given it, but I was on point as one of the nat four national deputy directors. The task was um, figure out how, in how many labor markets, how many labor markets would we have to take, meaning organize, create a crisis in, to take the entire national hospital industry union? Actually, that was the exact question. Go off and figure out in how many labor markets do we have to win to functionally create the context for national, we think of as national sectoral bargaining, like what the auto workers had in the 50s, 60s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, where, you know, the big companies sat down with the unions and just forged national agreements. That was functionally national sectoral bargaining, won by the bottom up, not by the law. There's a bunch of discussion about those laws right now. Let's not get distracted by them because we can do national sectoral bargaining if we build the power from the ground up. So in that effort, I think it was like 2003, um, if I have my memory hat on correctly, we began this project. And first we came back and the first answer from the researchers after like half a year was 65. And I remember this meeting in headquarters and they came in and slideshows and PowerPoints and maps of where there were state-based elections, Medicaid funding, political opportunities, trending D, trending Republican, trending blue or red, um, where profit making was happening in the hospitals. Cause you want to go, you want to go back to, back to your 208 point. You want to bargain against the boss with some money, right? I mean, it's one thing to get strike ready. And if you've got an employer with no money, that's a problem. So, you know, where are the hospitals increasing? Where's profit increasing? So we did this like 25 criteria grid to figure out if we took these labor markets, we could take the whole country. And 65 was the first number. And I remember like our boss at the time, very, very smart guy named Larry Fox, who's named Nate, one, one of a million names no one's ever going to know. And he sort of looked and said, nope, we don't have the budget for that. We can do 25. So when I come back in the meeting again, get your act together and come up with the 25 cities, functionally labor markets, come up with the 25 labor markets where if we field 25 
all out campaign for a couple of years, we can take the country union in the acute care hospital sector. Um, and we did. So we went back and did like another six months of research work and really serious drilling down elections, local elections, you know, everything under the sun, key, a real research project. Um, and we got to it. Um, and we got to the 25 labor markets. And if we could organize the majority of workers in those cities, in those hospitals, we could we could force essentially a national standard in the healthcare industry. That's the kind of smart work that we have to do. And that was one sector with one group of workers. And we, we actually had a plan that would take us essentially four years to get there until Andy Stern decided to destroy it, the former leader of the union. But I digress, re-raising expectations and raising hell if you're curious about that story. But like the point is, this is doable. Like we actually do know how to think about what would it take to get to a general strike? That's a long way off. How about what's it going to take to get to a simultaneous strike in 10 states, five major cities or 10 or 25 labor markets? Like that's a way more real and deeply meaningful goal that we should be setting. So between now and 2022, um, if we had a functioning labor movement, they'd be doing that exercise in the room together instead of what we were doing, which was one union with a lot of smart people in it back then, trying to figure out how to take the whole country union in a single industry. But that kind of planning is both entirely possible and, and fielding campaigns that would have taken those 25 labor markets was also possible. Our own ego and strategy and lack of good governance got more in the way of that plan than the actual, like, could we actually do the plan? So I, when I think back to that plan, that's my answer. When people say general strikes, I'm like, look, okay, first we need first we need a war room, right? We created a war room to figure that out. In every strike I've been in, we create a war room. That's a literal, like, literal space where political education is planned and happens, where workers come in and have agency and look at the walls and start to get taught, oh, this is how you do meta strategy. So we have to get way more experienced at what it means to do big strategy and big planning and big research. It's not rocket science, but in the left, there's such there's such a lack of experience with that level of work that people really just, it's just easier to tweet general strike. But to get real about it, it is something we can do. We can make the 25 labor market plan to take the country. Um, we don't have to call for a general strike across America. It's not realistic and it's not particularly useful. Figuring out what are the 25 labor markets we're going to seize in the next two years and then which 25 after that by 2024 to get us to a Green New Deal and saving the goddamn planet by 2030, that is doable. So I just want to interject really quickly. Um, our producer, Kale, actually found a picture of the hard hats uh, coming out with the nurses in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's awesome. Isn't that a I beautiful love that picture? picture? Yeah, Yay, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's an old black and white I have too, where they're that uh, just some organizers who I work with took that they said they were sending me. And they're and it was further back, so it was really ominous because they were marching up a hill, mm -hmm. right? Up onto the hill to that hospital. And it was like, whoa. I just remember thinking, man, when you're on strike, there is nothing like when you see a wall of men in hard hats coming to stand with you. That is priceless. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah and that picture is amazing. Um, so I, I want to ask you now about the difference between mobilizing and organizing, which I know is something that you've talked about quite a bit in the past. And I should say that I've also heard many other people sort of reference your distinction between mobilizing and organizing. 
And, you know, as you have sort of mentioned before, organizing uh, means actively expanding or looking to build your base, right? Um, and I think that something that you said in the past is that uh, that means, you know, getting offline, going outside of your social media networks and talking to people who you think you might not necessarily agree with at first blush. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me. But, you know, I also want to ask you in kind of, in generally this age of, I guess we might call neoliberal atomization, where, you know, our social institutions have been hollowed out. And uh, I mean, like here in New York, like you might not even talk to your neighbor for days, right? Um, given that, and then also on top of that, the added kind of social isolation of the pandemic, how can we actually do this deep organizing that you talk about in these conditions? Yeah. Um, so a few things, and 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 again, this might this might seem uh, simplistic, but I uh, it I think it's not. So the first is, you know, <laughs> for like thirty years, um, I have a certain way that I do my daily work plan, a certain way I do my weekly work plan. By the way, I'm hinting at this to the left work plans. <laughs> so the way that I do my yearly work plan, my quarterly work plan. Uh, and, and on, and on the, on my daily work plan, there's like, you know, in the, the equivalent of like the header, the shaded out kind of header bar. Um, it's what are you doing today to actively build solidarity? Um, and if people woke up in the morning and like shoved a post-it note right now, like where the toothbrushes or something and wrote like literally, like literally right down today, what are, I don't know if it's one, three, five things you're doing, one would be fine. Imagine if everyone did this, like, what are we actively doing to build solidarity today. And solidarity to me doesn't just mean, um, you know, getting uh, three friends of yours who have never gone to a march to go to a march with you, right? That's the mobilizing part. Building building solidarity, Jen, speaks to something you just said, which I, I reflect on a lot. Um, people say to me, well, you know, institutions are so hollowed out now. You know, civil society is kind of dying, like the Robert Putnam, whatever. There's all this literature about, you know, Theta Scott whatever. There's all this liter like academic literature and books, you know, about how less people attend churches, less people are involved in their union, less people. Okay, fine. So I'm an organizer. Okay, that's I consider that a challenge, not a problem. That's just a challenge when you wake up in the morning. So one one concrete thing, which also goes back to the political education question a little bit and how we win more. Um, and I'm going to speak to this from the trade union side, but it's no different to me if you're, um, I was just working with some parents today who are doing parent organizing on the other side of the K through 12, right? Aligning with teachers. So whether you're a parent waking up in the morning um, uh, and your kids, you, you have kids in public schools, whether you're a teacher in a public school, whether you're a healthcare worker who's been sacrificing your life every day during the pandemic, organizing is about, constructing and building solidarity. So when we think back to like the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, there's this image, right? We had these huge factories, uh, which we know from Marx, whatever, like, you know, or like our, the workshop for class power. But we don't have those big factories anymore. Not in this country. Not not mostly. I mean, we have some. Okay, we have plenty. Okay, let me do the details. We got auto parts in the South. We got plants in the South. Okay, fine. But it's, it is a different United States in the sense that we don't have these huge company towns with throngs, 
you know, of recent immigrants arriving at them or throngs of refugees, meaning black folks moving up from the south, right, in the Great Migration into the plants. We don't have these these giant facilities where 25,000, 30, 40,000 people, you know, punch the clock and the whistle goes off and they come to work and they've got a collective idiot for a boss and they can begin to figure out, you know, what to do about it. And by the way, when they check out and go home, they're all just walking down the street to get to their house and they're all saying hi to each other and they all go to church together. Like, that isn't the world we live in. That's why the intentionality with which we do our organizing today is so super important because we actually need to be part of helping to rebuild that kind of active participation in society. Frankly, there is no democratic project, small d democratic project, whether it's a, a dem- building democracy in your trade union local um, or the country, if we can't get people actively participating again, if we can't create the conditions that allow for and encourage people to come together and start working on political projects together. So on the trade union side, you know, everyone has to give people names, which makes me crazy. I like to call what I call whole worker organizing, just good organizing, but to define it for a minute, when I'm running a trade union campaign, any trade union campaign or helping to run one, I look at every single worker as a whole worker. Um, Most unions look at workers, they call them members, they don't call them workers. They call them members. Um, people usually say my members or my something, which makes me crazy. But there's a group of workers and they come to work. And for most unions, the, 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 the greatest imagination they have is like, can they get them? In, can they get all of them to sign up on membership cards? When I look at workers, um, maybe because I came from a house of a politician and I was a community organizer for a while and I helped run political campaigns. I look at workers as like whole textured people who have lives when they walk out of the workplace and they are more fractured today. So part of what whole worker organizing is, um, it's a, it's a bottom up approach to how do we rebuild and reconnect the workplace to the broader community through the lives of the workers in their communities. So when we do the working campaigns first, we build worksite organizations strong, right? So can you get to like a series of 80, 85% um, participation, active campaigns at work, structure tests at work. And once the trust is built, once there's enough trust, we start to figure out and chart everyone's non-workplace social relationships. So who goes to what church, whose kids go to what school, uh, little league, soccer club, book club, whatever it is, right? There, There are, in fact, a lot of things that people engage in when they leave the workplace. And so if you're a community organizer and you're doing housing organizing, you know, where do they all work is one fundamental question. You just reverse the questions you're asking. Um, But then the question is, how do we begin to help people connect those dots? How do we connect it? I'm going to give you one story about this that opens up the preface, a collective bargain, the new book, which just got lost, the impeachment is coming out in the second edition soon. And they let me write a new preface after the election. And in it, I decided to tell the story of someone named Joyce Rice. Um, I hope Joyce Rice sees this sometime, but she'll see it in the book. But you know, Joyce Rice was a nurse in Philadelphia in a hospital called Einstein. Um, and Joyce Rice uh, was sitting in a meeting where we had been engaging in what was called a power structure analysis. So like the research I was describing a few minutes ago that we were doing nationally, we we're just doing it in Philadelphia in 2016 in a big hospital campaign. And fast forward, they built solidarity at work. The worksite structures are really strong and good. We've hit that threshold where we have majority and supermajority participation, not or, like participation, people actively participating at a supermajority level regularly in the campaign. And it's not enough power to move the CEO. So we moved to phase two. We bring hundreds of nurses together and say, 
time to build even more power. It's going to take even more power than just being really well organized at work. And so connecting with your community is going to be really crucial. And this is a way to re build social networks. So long story, we do some power analysis, we show some slides, we got a bunch of nurses in the room who have just formed unions, they don't have them yet there, but they've like voted and they've won their election. They're looking at this PowerPoint screen where we have this like map of faith-based power in Philadelphia. It's like one of like 50 slides, you know, religious power, faith-based power, ward power, we have everything analyzed on these big screens and they can see it. And Joyce Rice, this labor and delivery nurse, who doesn't tend to talk a lot, she's pretty quiet. Uh, black nurse, who I think in Philadelphia, like most of the black nurses, like knows the whole power structure because they birthed all their children in those hospitals. Anyway, Joyce Rice, who literally knows everyone if you start talking to these nurses, raises her hand and says, you know, um, I thought that, you know, you put that Baptist Pastors and Ministers Alliance up on the chart there, Jane, and I'm sorry I was texting during the meeting, but I just texted with my minister and I thought I saw in the church newsletter that he'd become the head of that. And it looks really powerful. So I just texted him. Turns out my minister is actually the head of the Baptist Pastors Ministers Alliance. And he really wants to hear from all the nurses about what's going wrong in the hospital. Now, you can't make that shit up if you're an organizer on planet Earth, right? We're literally trying to figure out the entire power structure. Who can get to the mayor? Who can get to this one? Who can get to that one? And we've got a nurse who's a labor and delivery nurse who's sitting in the room and do the math on this because everyone in that room had connections like Joyce Rice. We got one nurse sitting in the room who has a connection by church that she's never committed, that she's never connected that dot in her head before, that she's not just a powerful nurse in the labor and delivery in a big hospital. She's a life attendee at one of the most powerful churches in Philadelphia with a super powerful black minister who I'm going to guess when he calls up the mayor's office, gets in on one phone call. That's one of my tests for how do you have power? Do you get into the mayor's office on one phone call? There's a lot of ways to figure out who has power. So there's a, there's a, there's a million, a million pieces of power that we are leaving on the table every damn day because we are not, whether we're doing community organizing or trade union organizing, we are not, doing it systematically in a way that helps construct and connect people and all the connections they have. That's all organizing is. It's mapping human social relationships and then building solidarity inside of them. That single act of like some people doing a power analysis, showing it on a wall to a bunch of newly organized nurses. And that, and I said to, I'll close the story by saying, because there's so much in this one story. There's a lot of skepticism, I'll just say, on the part of some of the leadership going into that meeting, um, that, that the nurses would be bored by seeing a presentation about the power structure. That was a, that's a quote, by the way. And I was like, yeah, I don't care. I'll, I'll risk that they're going to get bored, and then we'll see if they're bored. Not, they were not only not bored. They were like on fire. Like, whoever teaches you the power structure of your whole region, right? So, And they were beginning to suddenly realize they're in the power structure. They're in it because they're tethered to all these faith-based leaders who at that moment had way more power than them. So suddenly Joyce Rice is like sitting up, right? Like she ain't just a labor and delivery nurse, which I think is a godly position. She's connected to one of the most powerful people in the city who loves and respects her deeply because she's been in his church all this time. Within one week, a group of nurses went. He convened the hundred congregations from the Baptist Pastors and Ministers Alliance. They wrote a letter a week later to the CEO of that hospital at Einstein and said, uh, we heard from our nurses, all of whom, by the way, you know, work in these hospitals in this city. And we're essentially putting you on notice that they need a fair contract and they need it now. And we're all watching. And it was CC to half the universe, right? That is how organizers 
of every kind can help construct and rebuild a more uh, nurturing, resilient, powerful um, community writ large that is capable of winning the kind of fights that we're describing and building towards taking 25 labor markets and taking the country. Like it, it isn't rocket science. It does require systems and methods. And that's uh, that example is something we could be doing in every single campaign in this country. You know, I used to work right up the street from Einstein at a school right by there. So maybe I saw her on a lunch break or something. Probably. She's amazing. She's amazing. The whole yeah. face. I had to call her up a couple of weeks ago just to like run it by her. And it was so fun to reconnect and talk to her. Um, totally amazing. She's like, you're going to tell that story in a book? Like she still doesn't even get how big a story she was in that moment. You know what I mean? That's right. what anyway. Yeah. That's, that's real organizing. That's base expansion. That was not the let like, and Paul, you might know this from Philly. That was not the sort of self-described left-wing ministers and pastors alliance in fact it was a pastors alliance with much more power honestly than Mm -hmm. the smaller left-wing one that everyone would refer to all the time and i'm like that to go talk to the already convinced ministers who are progressive that's mobilizing you go you go go do that that's fun have fun i'm going to get these nurses to realize that they can organize the entire faith community of Philadelphia on their side and against the power structure in their favor. That's an organizing approach. That's bringing new faith leaders into the work organically through their own connections, which are the nurses' own connections in that case. Right. Um, And speaking of nurses, I think, you know, you could call this year the year of the essential worker. And I think in the public consciousness, there's kind of this newfound appreciation for the role of workers in society and, you know, even the corporate world and the government, they didn't back it up with material stuff, but even they are, there's this rhetoric about essential workers. So my question is, you know, how can we build on and mobilize this public sentiment in support of some upcoming contract fights and organizing drives? So like one thing I'm thinking about is postal workers union contract, I think is up in like September. And again, it seems like forever ago, but they were the heroes of the summer. Um, you know, we actually did some flyering in Philly, uh, around it. I mean, everyone said it was the easiest thing they've ever done because there was not one person who was against it. So, you know, I'm thinking in this next contract fight for them, for nurses, whatever, you know, how can we kind of build on this public support to support some of these contracts that are coming up? Yeah. Um, I think by using a lot of the tools that we were just describing, but doing it more seriously and more systematically. So whether you're in a DSH, I mean, the point is doing this work alone is hard to do, right? That's organizing is like a team sport. It's a collective project. So whether you're in a DSA chapter, you know, Jacobin book reading club, uh, you know, obviously a union, whatever, whatever organization you're in, like, I think people need to get together. Um, and have some strategic planning right now. And I don't care if that means pull out markers and post-it notes and and, and vote on uh, priorities. Priorities really matter. And like actually decide. So what we're going to do is develop um, a way, like let's say we're not rank and filers. Let's say we're a community group. Um, What what are the three different things we're going to do this year to begin to actively support workers who are in contract fights, those essential workers that saved all of our lives and made it so that those who get to stay home got to stay home and those who went to work survived or stood a chance at surviving. Um, so one is setting priorities. Two is doing some for, for organizations like uh, what I would call self-selecting groups like Democratic Socialists of America, for example. It's about getting together and making some priorities and being super clear about them. Let's say, why don't we make the decision? Why doesn't everybody make the decision? 
that, that this isn't just a year of essential workers, that the next four years are going to be the next four years um, of how do we restore dignity to the workers who made it possible, um, like postal workers, um, who made it possible for VA, you know, workers in the Veterans Administration or fill in the blank, right? Every grocery store. I mean, I'm on the phone with today with a head of a huge United Food and Commercial Workers local. I mean, you know, people going into grocery stores and like making it so that we can have food every day or the farm workers. I mean, I think there's got to be something like, I mean, if Congress is too strong a word, but the first thing we need is like at the national level for people to stop, you know, I call it not running with scissors. Like, People need to like make an agreement. We're going to come together and actually work on solidarity and support. Um, every single contract. I mean, if you're in a local group, it's like indivisible, but different. It's like indivisible for like workers. Do you know what I mean? Like if you are in a local organization, you should do some bare bones research. Um, ring up the Central Labor Council. Uh, ask them which unions have contracts that are coming up this year who are in, who are workers who played, I believe that for any worker, but all, particularly the essential workers, healthcare workers, grocery store workers, food service chain workers, um, you know, in particular, right? Like postal workers, who, whose contracts in my locale are coming up? How would you know that? Just go to your central labor council. Even that might be hard in some places, but like make it a team project and literally start to make a calendar. Which unions where I live, have contracts expiring in 2021 and in 2022. Uh, okay, just two-year plan for now would be good. If we think about it, it's like we got a win in November of 2022. How about a two-year plan for every local organization and local rank and file group? For rank and file groups, you know, if you're a trade union, which other locals in my area? Because I think it's going to happen nationally is a little bit pipe dreamish right now. So if you're at a local level, you know, which which other unions? have big contracts coming up this year? And how can I begin to pass a resolution or work towards a majority resolution in my local union that says, this is the year we're going to start to act solidaristically and not piggy. We're actually going to start to actively support each other in this region. Can we figure out, again, I'm using the number 25 because it would be astronomical if we could do it. We're the 25 labor markets where we're going to pick and throw down and say, we're going to build unprecedented solidarity in the community for every labor struggle that's coming up for essential workers um, in the next year or two years. Um, and that's not, uh, that's not a pipe dream. That's really real. So, and what would that look like? It would look like people doing the charting exercise that I just described to you that we, that we went on to do with the, with the nurses at the Einstein hospital. Once they realized they have all these untapped connections, we began to systematically chart everyone's connections throughout the community and then began to map them to figure out, who actually has some power? Who are the people who can bring more power to the fight of this particular struggle with this group of nurses, right? That kind of planning and exercise can happen all across the country. It does mean, it does mean setting priorities, um, which is something the left is not particularly good at. Um, you actually have to make some choices because if we say we're going to work on everything, you can't work on everything. You can, no one can work on everything simultaneously um, and get much done at all. Um, because we've got to make some real choices based on good criteria. It's not that people can't keep working on every little fantasy we have, but to win something means we have to make priorities and decisions and then have a credible plan on it. Um, so I love, I love the idea that we would start saying, you know, uh, in one-to-one -one conversations and Zoom meetings. I mean, the challenge of Zoom is real and hard to get to your point 
Um, I, I have been working with uh, a lot of workers very closely this year, trying to adjust to how we build site structure via Zoom. And I will tell you that from last March and April, I guess last March, we started the, the second of the International Rosa Luxemburg Institute global training programs that I'm helping to co-lead with a bunch of now with the growing group of organizers. Um, and back in late March, when we did it, like, boom, like on the fly, we just started this international training program. We had the idea that we could continue to build site structure using Zoom um, and telephones, and, and we can, and we have. I will say, uh, to be real about it, um, by January of this year, you know, 10 months into the pandemic, it's it's pretty exhausting. I mean, I think people are pretty exhausted. So I think we have to be sort of realistic um, in the next few months about what we can do and do it because we're doing it. I mean, in California, up and down California, there's a bunch of site structure building that we're doing. Um, so I know that we can do it. Um, and there are workers winning right now um, by using Zoom and old fashioned telephones, right? And texting uh, to keep the relationship and to test, you know, has Sally, Joe, Bob and Paul, you know, sign the online Zoom petition. We can transfer all of this um, into Zoom and telephones for sure, period. And it's harder. So just being compassionate and realistic about it. Um, I think there's a lot of groundwork to do right now. All that research work we described, we should be doing now, getting ready to come out again. Like who are the unions, who are the essential workers who kept my community alive, who have contracts coming up this year? Where might those workers be trying to form new unions? How can I support, how can I actively throw my support and solidarity behind people in my community who enabled myself and my family um, to get through the pandemic? Like that's not hard messaging. And like you said, it's, it's not hard messaging. We have to create the tools that systematically let people engage in that project together. And that's what organizing is. It's coming up with a plan and setting priorities and then offering up what we call a credible plan with methods and systems attached to it. And then we go win. But it's so much easier to tweet. Come on. <laughs> All that stuff to do. Um, but that was great. Um, so the last question, I think you preempted my question about priorities. So I won't ask that one. Um, so last one is just, you know, I think there's a lot of young people out there who feel that they need and want a union, but are also like extremely disconnected from the labor movement and don't even know where to start. So what would you say, let's say there's a listener out there, they, they want a union, um, they have no idea what to do. What would you tell them? Like, what is just the first step, you know, to get from where they are now to even starting on this road, whether it's organizing a workplace or joining a union, you know, where to, where to start? Yeah. Um, uh, several places. You know, there's, there, are, there are sadly not that many resources out there, um, but the resources that are there are good and real. Um, you know, one is they can start a very small study group, right? The number of organizing campaigns in the last five years that have started out of study groups is sort of remarkable. Again, it won't work depending on the kind of worker and who, who they are, but like a study group could take either your reading or your discussing. Like, so start, but a study group is a nice way to do it. You know, we're going to read this one article together. Don't make it too overly ambitious. Um, we're going to ring out, we're going to ring up this place called Labor Notes. It has some really good basic literature and basic education for how you can get started. That's, they can, that's one thing. Um, they can uh, get in touch with the Rosa Luxemburg, go to my website uh, and, and get hooked into the next of the free Organizing for Power series that we're going to do, which will be in May. We're going to launch another global international training with workers 
um, that'll happen in May and um, May and June um, in 2021. We're just getting, trying to get the calendar set. That's a great, great entry level school um, to figure out what it means to actually try to build a union or try to build towards a strike. Or, by the way, try to reform your union internally, which is another piece of work that many people need to engage in. Um, so I think study grouping it um, and actively finding a handful of programs where people actually want to help you learn what it means to form a union. Sadly, that's not by ringing up most unions, remarkably, right? Sadly. Um, but also, even just before you ring up a union, uh, and there's definitely a lot of discussion about this recently with the recent gig worker union formation, but like all unions are not created equal. They're not. I say in a collective, I have a whole section of my, in my new book, in a collective bargain, I have a whole section of like, what do you do if you're a group of workers and you want to form a union? You better do a little research. So first figure out who's your team. Can you, can you, can you get five other workers um, in your workplace to sit down with you? Can, can that group of five of you begin to like look up organizing for power series or Rosa Luxemburg labor notes, or just like, I always stupidly hate to say like, get my book, but apparently no shortcuts is a book. A lot of people used to do study groups with. So have at it. I don't give you a photocopy it. You know what I mean? Sorry, Oxford, but I don't care. So, um, but it's getting together with someone and it's starting to look for the handful of resources there are and then engaging with them. Um, and we'd be happy to have every single one of them um, get together. They have to form a group to come sign up for the next organizing for power school we launched, but that's a great place to do it too, right? There are, there are many of us committed to figuring out what are the spaces in which we can help explain this because labor law is so Byzantine um, it's so complicated. You really need someone to help you explain the ropes to you and begin to show you the ropes. And you need some experience in this. It'll seem easy initially if you're only talking to the workers who want to form the union with you. But people need to appreciate the wall comes when you hit the group of workers who don't think that they want to form a union. And that wall gets sometimes insurmountable when they hire a union buster. So I always like to say if there weren't union busters in the United States, then workers wouldn't need to go figure out the seriousness with which they have to be ready to campaign to form a union. But because we know, in fact, there are very serious union busters all over this country whose job is to destroy them, it actually matters to do it with the know-how about what's going to come at you next in the campaign, because it's not easy to form a union it is the absolute right thing to do. So get some, get some learning under your belt about what the obstacles are going to be and what it's going to take. Shop around for the right union. I say in a collective bargain, you if you call a union to say, I want to form a union, the first thing I would ask, the very first thing I would ask if I was a worker with a group of workers, we've done some self-organizing, we've gotten this far, now we know we're going to need some more resources because we think a big union buster is going to come in. The first thing I would say to a union is, Put me in touch with a bunch of other workers who are already in your union so we can have an independent conversation with them about how, how they experience their organization. And if that union says to you, that's really not how things work here, or that would be hard to do, or hang up, just hang up and move on. Seriously. Because in a good union, the first thing that people, the first thing the organization would do is be like, oh, hang on. We want to, you know, you, why don't you get in touch with these workers who are already part of the union and let them explain to you how they did it and how it works. That's a good sign. Um, of a union, but don't just pick any union, shop around. Um, and you probably will need resources because it is crazy um, how many obstacles get thrown in the path of well-intentioned workers who want to form a union, just like 
how many you know obstacles get thrown in the path of trying to win a ballot initiative or trying to win a Senate race. Anything where we're contesting for power is going to create a serious opposition. And having serious opposition means you need some experience about how to beat them and how to get ahead of them and how to stay ahead of them. It's hard work and it's absolutely doable. And workers can do this, but we need experience to do it. Well, um, on that note, Jane, we've kept you for over an hour, but I could honestly listen to you <laughs> for another two. Um, I do want to, again, plug your books. Uh, Jane McAlevey is the author of No Shortcuts, uh, Raising Hell and Raising Expectations. And then, of course, her latest, which is A Collective Bargain, which she just mentioned. Uh, so, Jane, thank you so much again for being here. Um, I think we're going to wrap up now, but this was very enlightening. And I think kind of the... Um, the, the sort of perfect segment to a very weird day of, as you say, Trump is leaving, but at the same time, we have Biden and then the Peter Robb thing. So there's a lot going on right now, but um, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> it's not so easy, but it's so doable. It's so doable. Um, and I, I really believe that because for 20, no, God damn, I'm getting sold. Because for 30 something years, um, if we present the right opportunity to workers, I've actually never seen them be like, now nah, we don't want to do that. No, people actually right. want to come, right? So our job is to help create the conditions and the environment so that people can win. And we can win. And I'm delighted to be here with both of you. It was a pleasure. It was a great way to cap off a day where uh, the thing I cheered for the hardest uh, was watching the asshole get on that helicopter okay. and get the hell out. Get out. You know what I mean? Out of our lives. Right. And we know he's not out. But just getting him out of that building is something we should jump for joy about and then get up and make some priorities and make a plan of how we're going to support every essential worker and go and win. Really yeah. nice to hang out with you guys on, on this on this little show. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jane. Thank you, Jane. Um, I feel like if the left had generals, Jane would be like the five-star general. Yeah, I know. I, I'm not kidding. Like, she makes it seem really easy. Whenever I listen to her, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, that's totally obvious. <laughs> we'll just go out and do that right now. Right. Um, but again, like, definitely everybody check out her books. Uh, they're amazing. Um, you know, check out her other interviews on the Jacobin channel, uh, her interviews in Jacobin. Uh, she's great. She's She's been a longtime and labor organizer. And sorry. I was going to say a collective bargain. I haven't read all her books, I'll be honest, but that one is very good, um, especially, you know, really sets the scene well for the growth of unions in the 30s and 40s. So if you're interested in that period, but don't want to read a whole book, it's like two chapters, but it's really, I highly recommend it. I, if I didn't like it, I just wouldn't say anything. So I promise. Um, so I, I also want to mention, uh, Paul, you kind of sell yourself short, but you are also in many ways a labor expert. Um, for all for all our viewers out there, Paul is, of course, he's he's sort of coyly alluded to this, but he is a union man. He's a rank and file union member. Um, he knows a lot about labor history. Paul, I think you know pretty much everything there is to know about A. Philip Randolph. <laughs> um, and so, so we want to sort of open, we want to sort of open up the floor to you guys, the listeners. Um, if you have a question about labor history or labor organizing, if you want to start a union in your workplace, but you're not really sure where to get started, um, definitely write to us, leave a comment in the YouTube comments or in the live chat. And, um, Paul will answer them 
the next time he's on the Jacobin show. Uh, so, so Paul is kind of our dear Paul labor advice columnist from here on out. Um, and, and we'll try to get Jane McAlevey back in the mix at some point, but I just want to, I just want to put it out there that, you know, like I said, Paul, you, you don't always make it clear, but you, you really know a lot about labor and um, the audience should take advantage of that. Yeah. And I think part of the thing of answering the next time is it will give me a chance to uh, confer with other people who, do know more about labor and make sure I get the right answer. But, and this kind of started, I think it was the second show. Someone asked about Taff Hartley and we didn't really explain what that was well on the spot, but I think that's a question many on the left had. Um, but yeah, I think like we kind of mentioned with Jane, there's so many people out there who are very curious about unions, like know abstractly that it's good, but you know, don't have much experience without uh, beyond that. So yeah, feel free submit questions and I, the next episode I'm on, I'll do my best to give you a good answer. Yep. So labor questions, large and small, uh, ask Paul and he will answer. And just, sorry, producer. Here. I prime on purpose. <laughs> I want to add that, uh, of course. <laughs> that, uh, on social media, on YouTube, on Twitter, wherever you are, put hashtag labor Paul and we'll find them. We'll find your questions and we'll get to them. Kale literally made that up just now, but do it. Yeah. It's cause it's a brilliant idea. That's why I made it up. <laughs> hashtag my labor first Paul. Hashtag. <laughs> and, and send us your questions and, and we got an expert folks. All right. I'll let you guys finish. <laughs> I mean, on that note, like I said, um, always it's a pleasure to have Jane McAlevey on. I mean, I I thought that talk was really great. Um, She, I keep saying this, but she makes it sound so easy, right? Like I love listening to her and and, uh, uh, what she said about, you know, Peter Robb and the Biden administration. Like I, we were saying at the beginning of the show, like, uh, like the inauguration was a little boring. Like, I don't know, like Biden is maybe just sort of like, you know, the elite bipartisan neoliberal consensus, but she makes it seem like there's, there's maybe something else or there's maybe something that we can, we can do. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you can tell she's an organizer because I think we have to project, I think, realistic optimism. Obviously we can't be delusional, but I think as organizers, we got to look, there's always some opportunities, you know, um, and that includes even in this moment, I do think there are opportunities it takes a lot of work it's not easy but um you know i do think there are opportunities there so we have to remain i think um you know realistically optimistic well on that note send your questions to labor paul and uh good night we will see you next week all right good night everyone